I am so thankful that we get to turn yet again to the Word of God as I have studied, I have prayed, and I am ready to preach the Word of God in an expository way. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. I've titled the sermon, Three Necessities When Going Through Trials. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I don't know what, what is going on in your life and where you've been this week and what may be coming this upcoming week, but there's practical, practical truth in these verses for you and for me that we need to give our attention to. So last week, we looked at James 1, verses 1 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Follow with me now as I begin in James 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind, and it withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Very quick. Let's just pray one more time. God, please help us as we look into your word. Oh, Father, we are living in times where there is so much heartache and sadness and illness and trial and suffering all around us. Oh, God, would you help us? Help me, oh, Lord, in my weakness to preach clearly, faithfully, powerfully, passionately, persuasively. Would you help all of us to sit under the authority of your word, that we would be hearers of the word and doers of it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a man who tells the story of when he was serving in the Coast Guard, and he would tell of the compass course, and he said it like this, my job was to keep the boat on that particular course. The wind and the currents would cause the boat to drift, but it was my duty and my responsibility to keep steering the boat back to that designated course. He said eventually, when they were serving in California, uh, we would come inside of the Long Beach light and right into the harbor we would come. One day, we had to go out into a terrible storm, he said. They had to rescue a, a man and his daughter whose sailboat had been disabled. But on that particular occasion, he said, the skipper did not ask me to steer the boat, but he gave the task to a much more experienced man. He said, because it's it's relatively easy to steer a boat in calm seas, you could only imagine. But it's altogether different when you've got 60 mile an hour winds and 30 foot waves. How do you steer a boat in that kind of a storm? In that kind of a storm, he said, you need something big. You need something great. You need wisdom. You need help. Well, similarly, similarly as the pastor of the Jerusalem church, James, the brother of Jesus, knows that it's relatively easy to steer your Christian life when things are calm. But when you have 60-mile-an-hour winds and 30-foot waves, and you're looking out, and there's something far bigger than you, and far bigger than you can handle in your own strength, you need something great. You need something big. It's much more difficult when the storms of life hit you with full force. What do you do? Where do you go? Where do you turn for help? 
Last week in James 1, verses 2 to 4, you'll remember we saw the three essential ways in which you and I ought to face trials. Number one in verse 2, we ought to be joyful. Number two in verse 3, we saw that we ought to be hopeful. And then in verse 4, we saw that we ought to be patient. When trials come our way, we must be joyful, hopeful, and patient. And you can respond to that and you say, Pastor Jeff, I get it. I agree with you. But can you help me understand how to do that? I know I need to be joyful, and I know I need to be hopeful, and I know I need to be patient. But how do I do that? Verses 5 and following give you the answer. Verses 5 and following are going to give you safeguards that we desperately need. And the title of my sermon is essentially the three points of my sermon. We, we need the wisdom of God, we need the faith, and we need humility. All of this that we're talking about reminds me of, a, of an occasion that I, I love, love reading about. It's in the Bible, Second Chronicles chapter 20. Let me just tell you about it. You don't have to turn there. I'll just refresh your memory. A man, Jehoshaphat, is reigning as the king over Judah. He's a good man. He's a good king. At least he started off well and ended badly like many of them did. But when he was the king, there were a number of nations that came against him for battle. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 that the Moabites and the Ammonites gathered together to make war against Jehoshaphat. I mean, they far outnumbered Judah. I mean, they far outnumbered the people of Israel. And here's what the text says. Jehoshaphat is afraid, and he turns his attention to seek the Lord, and he proclaims a fast throughout all of Judah. So the people of Judah gather together to seek help from the Lord. What a great thing. I mean, wouldn't you imagine? Wouldn't it be great to have a leader that said, let's pray and fast because there's trouble on the horizon? Well, that's what Jehoshaphat did. They gathered, they prayed, they sought the Lord, and Jehoshaphat said, Lord, Lord, we have built the temple here. Should evil come upon us? Would the enemies destroy us? See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out. Lord, will you not judge them? We are powerless before this great multitude. We don't know what to do. Listen carefully. Then he prays, but our eyes are on you. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. That verse is awesome. Lord, we don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. We've got nations on the horizon, and they're bigger, and they're mightier, and they're ferocious, and they're stronger, and they're coming after us, and I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. What does Jehoshaphat do? Number one, he says, God, I'm dependent. I'm dependent. I can't do this. I'm weak. I'm powerless. He said, second of all, I'm ignorant. I don't know what to do. I really don't know what to do. I don't know how to lead the people. I don't know what to do. I'm dependent. I'm ignorant. And third, Jehoshaphat said, but I'm determined. Our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. Now, you and I, church family, you and I don't have the Moabites coming against us. You and I don't have the Ammonites coming against us. But probably in your life, there's something bigger than you can handle. There's something that is coming into your life, maybe it's come into your life, or it will come into your life, and you're going to look at this thing and you're going to think, this is way more than what I can conquer in my own strength. I can't do it. I don't know what to do. I don't know what decision to make. I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. But my eyes are on the Lord. We need to humbly acknowledge, like Jehoshaphat, I can't do this, Lord. This is bigger than I am. I don't have the strength from within to conquer this. So what do I need? I need you, Lord. I need you. And I think James 1 is going to finish that question. What do we need? 
when those times come into your life. If you're taking notes, you can jot down these three headings that we're going to look at together today. We need three safeguards. These are the, these, this is the armor that we need when the trials come our way. Yes, we want to be joyful and hopeful and patient, but, but how do we do that? Number one, here's what you need. You need a great wisdom. Great wisdom. Number two, you need great faith. Great faith. And then number three, we need a great humility. We need a great humility. Now, we're going to see each of these, I mean, just clearly come out of the text. And I hope and pray that not if, remember last week, but when God brings the trials. Not if, but when. And you're like Jehoshaphat and you say, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. My eyes are on the Lord. Our eyes are on the Lord. So let's begin, if you're taking notes, with number one. What is this first safeguard that we need? You need a great wisdom. Great wisdom. Look with me at verse 5 in James chapter 1. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Job chapter 12, verse 13 says, with God are wisdom and might. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from you. It comes from God. With God are wisdom and might. Remember that account in Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar makes that decree that they're going to they're gonna kill all these, 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 these people, these, these Jewish people, these leaders. Unless you can tell the, the king his dream and his interpretation. And so they were going to go out and kill. Word comes to Daniel. He says, let's pray about this. Let's pray about this. And he sought the Lord. He gathered his friends and they sought the Lord. How are we going to tell the dream and the interpretation to the king? But Daniel prayed and he prayed and he sought the Lord. And finally, the Lord revealed the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. And Daniel said, oh God, with you is wisdom. With you is wisdom. Never forget, you need a great wisdom to carry you through the trials of life. And God gives it. God gives it. But verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you know, the boys and girls might think, well, boy, I need that wisdom. I've got a spelling test tomorrow. I've got a history test tomorrow. I have a math test on Friday. True, you can pray for wisdom for that, but that's not the point of the context here. The context here is not intellectual abilities. The context is is practical, godly living when you're going through the trial. What do I do? When I'm going through that trial, what difficulty in your life right now, you can just allow your mind to wander for a moment, what difficulty in your life do you need God's wisdom, direction, guidance, Maybe it's related to work. Maybe it's related to money. Maybe it's related to other people. A spouse, a child, a parent. Someone you work with. Lord, this is in my life right now, but I don't know how to respond. I don't know what to do. And isn't it so sad that we can forget to pray? And worse, we might even presume that God won't help us. Burke Parsons wrote on this. He said, we often presume what God will not do, and thus we don't even ask him in prayer. It's almost like I I just assume, well, God's not going to do that. Maybe it's too big for God. Maybe I've prayed too much for that. And it's like we presume that God's not going to do something and that we don't ask him. You see, the book of Proverbs gives so much wisdom on this because what we read in Proverbs chapter 2 
In verses 2 through 5, we read this. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment and you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and you search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and you will discover the knowledge of God because the Lord gives wisdom, Proverbs 2. Christian, never forget that. God gives wisdom. Whatever trial you're going through, whatever hardship, whatever pressing circumstance in your life, you need wisdom. And God gives it. Now, under heading one, you need a great wisdom. I want to give you three simple phrases. Number one, you lack wisdom. You lack it. Number two, God has it. And then God gives it. Very simple about this wisdom from verse 5. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. We we need the God-given truth that enables us to avoid the path of wickedness so that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And you know what's humbling about this in verse 5? If you lack wisdom, we could all sort of raise our hand together and say, I do. I do lack wisdom. Because, let let me tell you why. We don't know all that's going on. We lack knowledge. We don't see the situation that we're in from every angle. We lack perspective. We lack experience in what to do in a given situation. And we also lack the power to bring about change. But God, but God has the wisdom that you need. God is totally sufficient when you feel totally weak. God is totally wise when you feel totally clueless. What do I do? How do I continue, persevere, obey him? If you lack wisdom, here's the command, verse 5. You see it there. It's a command from God to us. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. Now, you got to get this in point number one here. You got to get this. Here's what James says. If you lack wisdom, you need to pray and ask of God who gives to all generously without wisdom. Verse five points us to the person of God, not just the possessions of God. He doesn't say, you know, you should pray to God because God has quite a large storehouse and he can give you all the money that you need and all. He he doesn't do that. You need to ask of God. Why? Because God is a generous giver. You see, the motivation for praying for wisdom, don't miss this, is the person of God. It's the glory of God. It's the goodness of God, not just the gifts of God. Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. We need to ask of God. Why? Because, because God See it in verse 5, two reasons. He gives to all generously, and he gives without reproach. You know what I love about that? That tells us that God's character is such, he's not going to be upset with you when you lack something. He's not going to be upset with you. So you don't need to be afraid to ask God. Maybe you're going through a trial. Maybe it's a hardship, a difficulty. And other people, you're afraid to bring it up to them. Maybe you're afraid to mention something to others. Maybe you're afraid how they're going to respond. Maybe you're afraid of being reproached or mocked or ridiculed. Not so with God. Not so with God. Notice first, God gives generously. Generously. The Greek word means that God is a generous giver, don't miss this, without hesitation. With, with, without hesitation. 
You, you pray and you ask of God and he doesn't hesitate to give to you what you need. Oh, it's such a great word that James uses right here. It's not just that he has a great supply and he's got a great storehouse. No, the character of God is such that God's great character is so gracious that he is a generous giver without hesitation. And you want to know how gracious and generous our God is? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. I mean, think of what a generous God he is, that we are not neutral, but we are running from God. We are running toward judgment, toward hell, in our sin, because we love ourselves and our sins, dead in our trespasses. And yet God in love reaches and he snatches you. Sovereignly, mercifully, powerfully, graciously. This is the generous, gracious God. You ask him and he gives. But not only does he give, verse 5, generously. Notice, second of all, he gives without reproach. Now, you know, this took a little bit of study on my part to try to figure out what does this mean in the idea of James's writing that God gives without reproach? Here's what it means. God does not shame you for coming again and coming again and coming again and coming again. I remember when I was in college, I had a, a job at a hotel in the area. I was working in the restaurant and doing room service and serving in the restaurant. And I remember when I was starting out there, I had to learn the whole system, all the electronics and, you know, every entree and the whole menu and all that. And I, I remember one time there was, it was early on when I was beginning and I was so fearful of going back to my manager and asking for help again and again and again, because I was fearful of being ridiculed or, 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 or whatever the result might have been. Not so with God. Not so with God. God will never scold you when you come and ask him for wisdom. God will never berate you for asking him for wisdom. God doesn't ridicule you. He doesn't mock you. He doesn't demean you. He'll never make fun of you when you say, I don't know what to do. I need your wisdom. What, what a kind, generous God. Notice in verse 5, you and I lack it. We lack wisdom. God has all wisdom. And then verse 5, this is a promise that on your knees, you can open up your Bible and you can say, God, here's a promise. This is your own signature. End of verse 5, and it will be given to him. There is nothing in the character of God that would limit his giving to you. There's nothing in the supply of God that would limit his giving to you. There's nothing in the heart of God that would limit his giving to you. It's like Solomon. Remember when the Lord came to him in 1 Kings chapter 3 and the Lord said, ask whatever you wish. Well, what would you say to God if he said, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you? And he said, Lord, I am the king over all this people and I, I, I'm inexperienced. Give me understanding. Give me understanding to lead the people well. And the Lord was so pleased with that. The Lord gave him wisdom. The Lord answered that prayer. He gave it generously. This is how our Lord taught us in Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember this in Matthew chapter 7? Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf of bread is going to give him a stone? No father would do that here. Or if a son asks for a fifth, are you, are you going to give him a snake? No, you wouldn't do that. If you being evil 
know how to give good gifts to your children? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So, Christian, we are are in need of a great wisdom, and God has it, and he supplies it because his character is such. He is a generous giver. The problem is not that God doesn't give. The problem is that often I don't even ask. Thomas Manton, a Puritan, said God's promises will help us hold on to him in a steady trust. Now, I was reading this week in a commentary and came across this helpful illustration. There was a secretary who was going through some very difficult trials, and she had a stroke, and her husband had gone blind, and then he had to be taken to the hospital where, as far as the doctors and nurses knew, the man had very little time left. He was going to die. One Sunday shortly after that, this woman was in church, The pastor saw her, and the pastor said, ma'am, I'm praying for you. And she said, thank you, but may I ask, well, what are you praying for? Well, he said, well, I'm I'm asking God to help you and for God to to strengthen you through these trials. And and she, with with a very tender, but yet with a very sober-minded look, she replied, and she said, I appreciate you praying for that, but would you also pray for one more thing? Would you pray that I would have wisdom so that I don't waste any of these trials that God is bringing into my life? What what a perspective. That lady knew James 1 verse 5. We need wisdom. Can I just ask, before we go on to point two here, what situation in your life, what, what trying time in your life are you going through right now that's coming into your mind, it's, it, it's in your heart, you're thinking through this, and you think, this is for me. I need wisdom in this. What is that? You lack the wisdom? You're not sure what to do? Verse 5, ask of God. Come to your generous God and ask of him, and he'll help you this week. So number one, in verse five, what you and I need is you and I need a great wisdom. Now, in verse six, let's look in verses six to eight, you and I need, second, great faith. Great faith. Verse six, but if you ask, you need to ask in faith without any doubting, James says, because the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man should not expect that he's going to receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Don't you feel like you can relate to the disciples sometimes in Luke 17, verse 5, when they said, Lord, increase our faith. Just increase my faith. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, And verse 30, O you of little faith. And guess what the context is? Worrying, fear, anxiety. It's useless to worry. It's unprofitable to be anxious. Why? Jesus said, O you of little faith. Don't you know that God will provide for you? O Lord, increase our faith. That's our prayer. Because when we pray, verse 6, we need to ask in faith. Not doubting, not doubting, not praying, Lord, would you save the president? While in the back of your mind you're thinking, I don't know if that's really possible. Because he who doubts is like a surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, th- th- think of the image of a wave of the sea. You've all, you've all seen the ocean waves. You've been there. You understand this. A wave of the sea is without rest. So is the doubter. A wave of the sea is unstable. So is the doubter. A wave of the sea is just driven by the winds. So is a doubter. And you know what? A wave of the sea can be capable of great destruction. So it is with the doubter. But but James says, don't doubt. 
Because verse 7, that man who doubts should not expect that he's going to receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. He's a double-minded person. Literally in the Greek, he's a two-souled guy. He's kind of got a soul walking after God and then a soul that doubts. And then one soul that follows after Jesus and then one soul that's just kind of living in this doubting kind of a life. John Bunyan, in Pilgrim's Progress, called this kind of a man, Mr. Facing Both Ways. Facing Both Ways. Why? Because a double-minded person is somebody who's not fully committed. He's not wholeheartedly given to allegiance to Jesus Christ. Yeah, he prays, but he kind of doubts. Yeah, he comes to God in prayer, but he's unstable. He's a doubter. He's inconsistent. And here's what James is saying. James is saying, don't think and speak and act and pray in a way that contradicts your claim to belong to God. If God has saved you, if God has rebirthed you, if God is sanctifying you, believe in him. Have faith in him. This is not having faith for a bigger car. This is not having faith for a bigger bank account. This is not having faith as you pray for your personal interests. James 4 will talk about praying for personal interests later on. No, this is praying in faith when you're going through trials, saying, I am tempted to doubt, and I'm tempted to worry, and I'm tempted to fear, and I'm tempted to take matters into my own hands, and I'm tempted to waver, but I'm going to trust in the Lord. And that's not a bad place to be. You know, when it seems impossible, when that trial, that situation, that hardship seems impossible, Christian, can I just remind you, you can have full confidence in your loving Father. It's like Exodus. God said, I'm going to take my people Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And Moses, you're my guy. And he's like, how's that going to happen? The Lord said to Moses, what's that in your hand? A staff. Throw it down. And what happens? It becomes a snake. Whoa. Pick it up again. Well, I would have run the other direction. But Moses reached out his hand and he picked that snake up. And it became a staff in his hand. How are we going to feed this whole nation? You've brought us out of Egypt, and now we're wandering in this wilderness. We've just crossed the Red Sea. How are we going to feed all these people in the desert? Moses, why don't you strike the rock, and water's going to come out, and I'm going to rain bread and manna from heaven. What? Lepers come to Jesus, ten of them. They want to be healed. Jesus says in Luke 17, just turn around. And go show yourself to the priest for verification and purification purposes. I'm a leper. I've been a leper for a long time. And you're telling me to just turn around and show myself to the priest? And as they were going, they were cleansed. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22, All things you ask for in prayer, believing, you will receive it. That's what the Bible says. When these situations in life, like Moses in Egypt or in the desert, or the lepers, as Jesus tells them to turn around and go to the priest, or the situation in your life, it seems impossible. What does James say? Ask God in faith. Believe. Trust. Practically, don't fear. Don't be anxious. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't doubt. Don't worry. Don't be Mr. Facing Both Ways. Ask in faith. Verse 8 says he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So can I just practically help? So how do we pray? How do we ask God like this in faith? How do we do this? Let me give you just some real simple sort of thoughts that you could jot down. Number one, you want to pray with a strong faith. With a strong faith. Well, how do I do that? Remember 
what God has done in the past and how God is strong and mighty and able to help you in the present. You pray with a strong faith. Number two, you pray with a humble faith. With a humble faith. Like Jehoshaphat. Lord, I I don't know what to do. And I don't know where to go. And, And I just don't know what to do. Humble. Be humble. Third, pray with an expectant faith. You remember how many times Jesus says, watch. Pray on the alert. Be on guard. He said it to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says it in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to pray with watchfulness. Lord, I need wisdom with this trial. I don't know what to do. So you're actually expecting that God is going to hear and answer and provide what you need. Number four, you can pray with an obedient faith. So what does the Lord say? Well, you're you're in a difficult situation and people are going one direction and it might cause you to sin. It might tempt you to sin and you think, "I, I can't do that. I've got to walk in integrity and go this way and I don't know what the outcome is going to be. But I'm going to walk in obedience and trust God. Or fifth, pray with a single minded faith, single minded faith. Not doubting, but single-minded. And with that, we pray with a childlike faith. Because what do children do? They ask, and they expect you to do it. They believe you can do it. Imagine a father. Imagine a father who has a demon-possessed boy... He has a demon-possessed boy, and this demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9 is brought to Jesus because there's a demon that seizes the boy. It slams the boy to the ground. He foams at the mouth. The boy grinds his teeth. He stiffens out like a dead man. And the father says, Jesus, I, I told the disciples to cast out the demons, but they could not do it. That's fascinating. I think it's because they didn't pray. Jesus said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. When the demon saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him to the ground, into a convulsion, falling to the ground. He was rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father, I mean, you can hear the emotion and the passion in this, the urgency. And the, the father says, from childhood, it's thrown him into the fire. It's thrown him into the water to destroy him. This is one demon that wants to kill the boy. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said, if you can. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Aren't you thankful for that? All things are possible to him who believes. And then I love Mark 9, 24. Immediately the father cried out and he said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, Lord. I believe. I'm asking in faith. I trust you. I know you've got the power. I know you've got the ability. Help my unbelief. Can you relate to that? Can you relate? Christian, here this afternoon, in your trials... Yes, you know that James said you need to count it all joy and and you've got to to, to be hopeful because God is working endurance and you've got to be patient in the trial. You say, I know that. Well, then you, you need wisdom. You need a great wisdom from God. You also need great faith. If there's anything that you and I can take and we can apply from here today, very practically, it's let's be people who pray in faith. Pray in faith. I was reminded even this week at the Biblical Counseling Conference, one of the speakers was talking about how God invites us to pray. Now, you know that, and I know that. 
but yet hearing it afresh. God never says to you, stop too much. You've already come to me today with that. He invites you to come. And you know what? You can never ask anything too big of God. And you can never ask anything too small of God, too specific. So why don't I, and why don't you pray more in faith? Our God is generous. He gives without reproach. And so we pray in faith. Number one, we need a great wisdom. Number two, we need great faith. Now, now sometimes commentaries, and it's, it's often the case where these verses, 9 to 11, are treated as a completely separate unit. I don't buy it. I think it's in the same paragraph as dealing with trials. Because verse 12 says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. So verses 9 to 11 tell us the third safeguard that we need when going through trials. We need great wisdom. We need great faith. Third, great humility. We need humility. Now, let me just sort of begin by illustrating it with this. Could you imagine being James, the author of this book? And guess what? He's the brother of Jesus. How would you like to have grown up in the same house with Jesus? I mean, no doubt, James, from as early as he could remember, I mean, James saw humility enfleshed, didn't he? I mean, his whole life. Jesus was never prideful, never selfish. You imagine how many times Mary and Joseph said, James, why can't you be more like Jesus? He saw humility every day of his life. Watching his brother, Jesus. And not only that, they were poor. Very poor. They lived in Nazareth. They didn't have much. And yet James must have seen Jesus as a materially poor man, but yet he gloried in his spiritual position. Could you imagine? Never complaining. Never whining. Jesus from a poor family. I mean, they only brought turtle doves, right, when he was born. They weren't a wealthy family. Yet materially poor, yet spiritually rich. What humility Jesus must have had. Now, in verses 9 and following, follow with me as I read this. Verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. So here's what James is doing. James is going to talk in verse 9 to the poor Christian, and then in verses 10 and 11, he's going to talk to the rich Christian. That's that's all he's doing. So don't miss the big picture. Verse 9, he's going to talk to the poor Christian. In verses 10 and 11, talking to the rich Christian. And James is going to show that as we go through trials and live the Christian life, our faith must adopt God's eternal perspective regarding riches and poverty. We've got to have an eternal perspective. Verse 9, a brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. Well, who's a poor man who gloried in his exaltation? Well, here's one. Remember Acts 3, the man who was lame from birth? He was a beggar at the gate in the temple courts, and Peter and John come to the Jerusalem temple, and they heal him, and he is leaping and jumping and thanking and praising the Lord. He's a poor man. He was, he was weak. He had nothing. He was a beggar. And yet he was leaping for joy and exulting in God. Well, what about verses 10 and 11? The rich man glorying in his humiliation. Well, here's an example of that. Zacchaeus. He was a very, a very rich man. He was the chief tax collector. And yet he... Being a born-again man, trusted in the Lord and gloried, not in his money, but he gloried in his God. So verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. 
Uh, Take your Bible and maybe turn the next page to chapter 2, verse 5. Look at how James is going to bring this out. I love, love the gospel brought out here. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Earlier, the Apostle Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So James is writing to some Christians who were poor. Very poor. Very poor. You know what James is saying? He's saying, Christian, don't quarrel with the providence of God. Don't quarrel with the provision of God. Don't envy the world's pleasures. Oh, that that person just bought that brand new car. They just bought that vacation house. They're going there on that vacation. Don't envy. James is saying, remember your spiritual position far outweighs any material possession you could ever have. Do you hear that? So Jesus said to the church of Smyrna, you might have poverty, but you're rich. Revelation 2.9. You might have poverty, but in reality, you are rich. And illustrate it with this example of a man by the name of Billy. Billy Bray was born in 1794 in Cornwall, England. He was born in poverty, was barely educated. He became a, a tin miner. And he, he, he lived a worldly life and married a lady, and they had a terrible marriage, terrible marriage for years. Mercifully, God saved him. Mercifully, God saved him and caused him to be born again. Well, after the Lord saved him for the following four decades, the 40 years that God had him alive, after his salvation, his life was marked with exuberant joy. Exuberant joy. Now, now he, he was still a poor tin miner. He didn't have much. He was still living in poverty, and yet as a Christian, even he might be at work down in the mine or maybe preaching on the streets, he would sometimes leap for joy and shout for joy and just loudly express praise and thanks to God. That's what the other people said about him in his biography. He was a poor man living in poverty, and yet verse 9 tells us he gloried in his high position. James chapter 1 verse 9. The poor, the humble man glories in his high position. Christian, I don't know about you, and whatever your situation of life, you can glory in your high position. You can boast in the fact that you don't have to take pride in your stuff, but you can take much pride in boasting in your standing in the Lord all by grace. So that's written to the poor man, but now the rich man. Look at verses 10 and 11. But the rich man, he is to glory or boast in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he's going to pass away. So, the rich man, you are to boast, you are to glory in your humiliation. What's that? Well, here's Pastor James writing to rich Christians, verses 10 and 11, saying, "Don't, don't be ashamed to associate with Christ. And don't be ashamed, rich Christians, to associate with the poor. Don't Don't be ashamed. Don't take pride in your possessions, don't take pride in your position, but take pride in identifying with Christ. You can glory in Christ and in his humiliation for you. Pastor James is being so practical. He's saying, don't boast in your possessions, but you can boast in your acceptance with the Lord. You and I need to hear that. It's easy. It's easy for us to trust in our stuff. 
And we often compare, well, they have that car, I have this car, they've got those clothes, I've got these clothes, they're living that kind of a life, they're doing this and that, and we can easily compare. And James is saying, don't do that. James is saying, you and I should glory in our humiliation. Why? Because like the flowering grass, we are going to pass away. Well, Isaiah talks about that. The book of Psalms and Proverbs talk about that. The rich and the money will fade away. Look at all the images in verse 11, James 1.11. Notice how James is such a, a great writer. He wants to drive the point home. Verse 11, the sun rises with the scorching wind and it withers the grass and the flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. That's the illustration. All the verbs, all the images, something sprouts and then it withers. And the flower shoots up and then it falls off. The grass is green, and then it turns brown. End of verse 11. Do you see it here in your Bible? End of verse 11. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. What's what's Pastor James saying? Money can give you a false sense of security. Beware. Beware. I mean, changes in life can remove all securities in a moment. Ask somebody in Florida with with the hurricane last week. You can have all the money invested in a house, a car, all these things can be gone. So what is James saying? James is saying with all the language of the rich and the poor, he's saying you are wise if you put your trust in things that you cannot lose. Remember that quote from Jim Elliott? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You and I are wise if we put our trust in things that we cannot lose. So when you're going through trials, don't don't, don't trust in your stuff. Don't trust in your money. Don't trust in your possessions. What's James saying? When you're going through the trials, you can glory in your exaltation with Christ. Remember who you're living for. Remember the gospel that God has saved you with. Remember that you can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Whatever possessions you have in this life, you can always come to God to find help. So we need a great wisdom. We need a great faith, and we need great humility. Before we leave this, before we leave the great humility, you say, so I suppose if we were to be compared with others, relatively speaking, around the world, we're all rich. We're all the rich ones here. How do we grow in great humility as we know that we're not to pursue the things of this world? The things of this world are going to fade away, pass away. How do we cultivate humility? The first word I would give you is position. You can glory in your spiritual riches, not in your material possessions. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. How do we cultivate this humility? Second, rejection. We must refuse to put confidence in earthly wealth. Now, hear hear me carefully. The problem is not wealth. You're not in sin if you have wealth. The problem is when you put your confidence in the worldly wealth. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Just ask Solomon. He tells the testimony in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I tried all the things of the world. It's all vanity chasing after the wind. So how do we grow in this humility? Third, ambition. Ambition. To live fully for Jesus Christ every day of our lives. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Jesus died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died 
and rose on their behalf. What what does God want from us? He doesn't want us to live for ourselves. He wants us to live for him. May that be our ambition. A fourth way that we can cultivate this great humility. Fourth, is just remember protection. Protection. Romans 8, what can separate you from the love of, of God? Tribulation, persecution, hardship, nakedness, peril, famine, sword. No, and all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 31 to 39. You can glory in the protection that you have, not in your stuff, but in the grip of your Savior. How do we cultivate humility? Number five, compassion. Compassion. You store up treasures in heaven by giving the treasures away. You can't take your money with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't send, take the treasures with you, but you can store up treasures in heaven by giving. By giving. Matthew chapter 6, our Savior gives so much on that. To grow in humility, remember these things. So as we're going through trials, as these difficulties come our life in our life, yes, we need to be joyful and hopeful and patient, James begins, verses 1 to 4. But we need safeguards because these trials continue and they endure and they're still there. And when you're like Jehoshaphat and the storms are coming, the nations are coming, and it's so big, we need a great wisdom. We need great faith. And we need great humility. And as I draw this to a close, everything you need, Jesus supplies it. You need wisdom? Jesus is all wisdom. You need faith? Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. You need humility? Jesus is perfect humility. So, in that difficult relationship, where there's strain or disharmony or disunity, Christian, hear this. Jesus supplies you with great wisdom as you pray in faith and walk in humility. Maybe you're in that hard-to-endure illness, sickness, physical condition, bouts of debilitating pain. Christ supplies you with great wisdom as you pray in faith and walk in humility. Maybe in your life you're at a decision-making pressure point. When when you need to make an important decision, and it's going to impact you and your family. Christ supplies you with the wisdom that you need as you pray in faith and walk in humility. Maybe you're with those people, maybe family, maybe a work associate, and they know you're a Christian, but they just think you're foolish. And they ridicule you for trusting in Christ and not doing what they're doing. Christ supplies you in those moments with the wisdom you need as you pray in faith and walk in humility. In that moment when you are mistreated for the name of Christ, you're slandered, you're mocked, maybe even threatened at work. You're pursued by enemies of Christ. Listen, Jesus supplies you with the wisdom you need as you pray in faith and walk in humility. So, we close with these words. Colossians chapter 2 says that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Imagine God brings you to a treasure chest and he opens it. And he says, you can dig as much as you want. And you'll never get to the bottom And keep digging and keep digging. Everything you need, your supply, is found right here. That treasure chest for the wisdom that you need is found in Christ. May the Lord help us as we endure through trials for God's glory.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the power of your word, the penetrating nature of your word, how relevant it is, how helpful it is. Oh, how we need it. Would you guard us this week as we work, as we serve you, as we love our families, as we live out the role and function that you have given to us in life, help us to find this great wisdom to have great faith and great humility as we trust in Christ. In Jesus' name.